Hey guys, yes, it is Han from the Mind Blown Podcast. Uh, yeah, I am back, and uh, we have not uploaded in quite a while. Anyway, we'll start uploading uh, more frequently now, uh, which should be pretty nice. And uh, our exams got over only a few days ago, and our break started two days ago, so uh, I have quite a bit of time on my hands. However, Nathan is at the beach, meaning it'll be just me for like maybe just this episode, and next episode maybe he'll join, I'm not sure. Uh, but we'll be uploading every Sunday like we used to, and, uh, yeah, that should be cool. So without further ado, let's just dive straight into the episode. Our first topic of today is how scientists can turn stem cells into bones, using nothing but actually just the vibration of atoms, or sound. Stem cells actually have the superpower of turning into basically any other type of cell. Some animals actually use it to regrow their limbs, for medicine. They also help us carry out the potential to help us repair parts of the human body that were damaged in any way, shape, or form. Carrying out the repairs needs the ability to manipulate the stem cells and their abilities altogether. And a very recent study outlines a new innovative way of doing just that. Using very high frequency sound waves to turn stem cells into bone cells in just 5 days, with only 10 minutes of stimulating treatment per day. Not only that, but researchers hope we'll also be able to use the same technique, which has so many more advantages over the processes that we're currently using, and it can be used to regrow bones that have actually been lost to cancer, for starters, or any other type of degenerative disease. The sound waves cut the treatment time usually required to get stem cells to turn to bone cells by almost several days. This method doesn't require any drugs or prerequisites either. It's very easy to apply and use with the stem cells. The approach is on years of modifying materials bit by bit with sound waves above 10 MHz, which are a lot more higher frequencies than any other researchers in this field have used in these experiments. In this case, a microchip was used to transform stem cells into silicone oil, and it was placed into a culture plate. Any other experimental processes in this field have had a small amount of success, but they're all pretty expensive to manage and difficult to scale up. They also require stem cells that are extracted from another patient's bone marrow, which is quite a painful procedure. The new approach is an improvement in all of those areas, actually. The researchers have shown that it works with a large variety of stem cells, including fat-derived stem cells that aren't as painful to pull out of the body. When stem cells are pressured in just the right places, it speeds up the change process, which is exactly what the very high sound waves do. Their device is very cheap to use and it can be upscaled and mass-produced to treat a large number of cells at the same time. The upscaling though is the next step of the process. Theoretically, it all should work outside the lab, but scientists are going to have to make sure. There's also scope for the technology to be miniaturized even more. Suddenly, tons of breakthroughs have been made whether it comes to turning stem cells into different types of cells to fight various health issues. As our understanding of our biological building blocks increase, we can even get a better insight into how our bodies work at all. If this particular process can be upscaled though, there could be many more ways of using it as a treatment. Eventually, it's hoped that the bioreactors can be developed to process stem cells just like this. It has strong potential for treating stem cells before we can either coat them or onto an implant or inject them directly into the body for tissue engineering or some sort of biochemistry healing, which would be very cool. Pretty recently, one of the universe's largest galaxies we discovered has just been found. It's an absolute monster of a galaxy too. It's located about 3 billion light years away. It's called Alcyonius, which is a giant radio galaxy reaching 5 whole megaparses into space or you can say 16.3 million light years across, which is one of the largest known structures of the galactic origin. 
This discovery actually highlights our poor understanding of how large the galaxies can get and what brings them to their incredible size, but it could also be a path to better understanding, not just giant radio galaxies but almost every galaxy that drifts in space to date. Giant radio galaxies on the other hand are a large mystery, they consist of a quote unquote host galaxy that obviously has a cluster of stars orbiting a nucleus containing a supermassive black hole, but also colossal jets and lobes that come from the galactic center. These jets and lobes are known as synchrotrons, which sound pretty sci-fi, and they accelerate the electrons we and produce radio emission, which produces the jets we're pretty sure. And it's the black hole in the middle. We refer to the black hole as active when it's basically scientifically accreting, but I like to call it eating material from a giant disk of material around it. But not all material on this disk ends up beyond the event horizon. Some of it in fact gets funneled from the inner region of the accretion disk to the poles, where it's blasted out into space in the form of ionized plasma, pretty close to the speed of light as well. They can travel extremely large distances before spreading into radio emitting lobes. What we don't really know is why some galaxies grow so large it's incomprehensible, or even megaparses across. These are called giant radio galaxies, the most extreme examples which we could use to understand how these galaxies get so large. The team went looking for these outliers in data collected by the LOFAR, an interferometric network consisting of around 20,000 radio antennas distributed in 52 locations all across Europe. They reprocessed the data in a new pipeline, removing compact radio sources that would usually interfere with the detection of these radio lobes and correcting for optical distortion. The image this they got represented the most sensitive search ever conducted for radio galaxy lobes. They then used the best pattern recognition tool available for locating the galaxy, their eyes. This is how they found the galaxy. The galaxy other than its size is just a fairly normal elliptical galaxy, about 240 billion times the mass of the sun and a black hole in the center about 400 million times the mass of the sun. These numbers are surprisingly low compared to other galaxies that we've seen, but its size is absolutely outstanding. China's U-22 mission just made a new discovery on the far side of the moon. Amidst the grey dust and rock on the surface of the moon, the rover's panoramic ca uh, camera found two small, completely intact spheres of translucent glass. It's so mysterious and questionable how they got there, but its shape can actually record information all about the moon's history, including the composition of its mantle and impact events. U-22 was unable to gather compositional data, but these natural lunar marbles could be important research targets in the future. Glass on the moon, though, isn't that uncommon. The material forms when silicate material is subjected to very high temperatures, and both ingredients are easily available on the moon. In the past on the moon, when there's been extreme volcanism leading to the construction of volcanic glass and impacts from smaller objects such as meteorites, and also generate intense heat resulting in the formation of the glass. Meteorites are pretty likely in this case, but it's also pretty hard to know for sure. Most of the glass on the moon looks different from the spherules discovered by U-22, but there are many of them, and they tend to be a lot less in, than a millimeter in size. The ones that were discovered by U-22 are almost 15 to 25 millimeters. In fact, during the Apollo 16 mission, 40 millimeter spherules were discovered. They were found in a nearby crater and were thought to be from impact as well. 
Here on Earth, the formation of these are created during impact, generating such intense heat that the crust actually melts and sprays into the air, and the material hardens and falls as tiny glass beads. They were found near fresh impact craters too, which suggests that they were formed during lunar meteorite impacts, but it's possible that they were already there. They were already present below the surface and were just merely excavated by impacts. The most likely explanation though is that they form from volcanic glass called anathorsorite, which has melted on impact forming these small glass spheres. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan and good god it's been a while since I've been on here. To put it briefly, time zones are hard and while I was in France, Ahan and I couldn't make timings work so we just gave up. But I'm back home now, and I'm writing the script at a beach house that I was dragged to against my will. Though by the time I'm recording, I'll likely be back home in a room with two screaming chickens. You might hear them throughout this recording. Anyway, let's get started. Recently, European scientists have set a brand new record for the most energy generated from nuclear fusion. This is the latest breakthrough in an effort to produce power the same way the sun gets power. This has been going on for a few decades now. A team of researchers from the Eurofusions Consortium produced 59 megajoules from a sustained reaction that lasted 5 seconds, taking place in the Joint European Taurus Facility in Oxford, England. To give you some perspective of how much power that is, it's enough to boil about 60 kettles. I promise I'm not that big of a tea addict. Ian Chapman, chief executive of the UK's Atomic Energy Authority said, and I quote, These landmark results have taken us a huge step closer to conquering one of the biggest scientific engineering challenges of them all. JET, a collaboration between Switzerland, the UK, and Ukraine, founded in 1978, is the world's largest and most powerful tokamak machine. This design was pioneered by Soviet scientists in the 1950s, and it uses powerful magnets to hold plasma of two hydrogen isotopes called deuterium and tritium in place while they get heated to temperatures hotter than the sun, in order to make the atomic nuclei fuse, which, uh, which releases energy. In half a century of experiments around the world, scientists have not been able to generate more energy from a fusion reaction than the system to create the reaction consumes. Arthur Terrell, author of a book called The Star Builders, which documents the multi-decade effort to make fusion energy, said that this test more than doubles the previous energy output record of 22 megajoules achieved in 1997, and that it's a big step forward. He said, quote, In terms of power, it's equivalent to about four wind turbines. That's close to industrial scale. Now, let's take a closer look at this tokamak machine, shall we? To start, any air in the system is extracted from the torus-shaped vacuum chamber, and then the magnets are charged up. Then the fuel is, in is introduced. In most cases, these fuels are deuterium and tritium. After that, a current is run through the torus, which strips any electrons from the fuel, which forms a plasma. From there, the energized plasma collides, and it begins to heat up, helped by the additional heating and being confined by the magnets that were previously charged up. They reach a condition such that fusion can happen, and then this heat can be transferred out for electricity generation, typically, do, uh, typically done using steam turbines. Unlike the cousin of nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, which happens when atoms are split, fusion doesn't produce a huge amount of radioactive waste. The biggest challenge that needs to be overcome to make fusion energy commercial is how to sustain the reaction for longer periods of time and preventing it from extinguishing. Terrell said, quote, 
That might not sound impressive, but 5 seconds is an incredibly long time on nuclear timescales. The progress made at JET is projected to go into future experiments at ITER, which is the world's largest fusion project. Uh, that's and it's currently under construction in France at a cost of over 20 billion US dollars. Tony Don, Tony Don, I probably butchered that name. Uh, head of the Eurofusion Consortium said, "Quote: If we can maintain fusion for five seconds, we can do it for five minutes, and then five hours as we scale up our operations and future machines." Fusion Energy has a good amount of skeptics because of how long it has taken uh, it has taken to make progress, but. As it has shown promise as a tool to fight climate change, it has also increased in interest over the past decade, and searches for nuclear fusion have even surpassed searches for wind power in the past few weeks. Fusion energy would emit no greenhouse gases, and the supplies of the chemical inputs are pretty much inexhaustible, as there are, as there are about 5 grams of deuterium in every bathtub of seawater, while, and while tritium is less accessible, it is able to be taken from the commonly found metal lithium, or can even be generated from the reaction itself. It's pretty much a self-reinforcing cycle. A small glass of fuel could theoretically power houses for hundreds of years. Jet and Eater are just two of many large and publicly fund, uh, funded fusion projects around the world, but private sector money has also been flowing into fusion energy startups. In total, private sector funding has reached over 3 billion US dollars. Uh, by the end of 2021, with some of the ventures trying to deliver commercial power in the 2030s. George Freeman, Minister uh, for Science, Research, and Innovation in the UK, said that the UK was committed to helping fusion energy succeed, and added on, quote, We are determined to make sure we adopt it in our energy mix, and make clear to the energy sector that this technology is coming. So, you remember back in February of 2021, the Perseverance Mars rover landed. Pretty big deal, but right now, we're not talking about Perseverance, we're talking about an older rover, one that landed in November of 2011. Curiosity. This week, the Curiosity rover took a picture of something that you might find pretty cool on Mars. The object in question looks like a pretty little flower or some kind of organic feature, but the rover team has confirmed that this object is, in fact, a mineral formation. Here's the thing, this wouldn't be the first time. Curiosity has seen these features before, they're called diagenetic crystal clusters. Diagenetic is just a fancy word for the recombination or rearrangement of materials, and, and these features consist of three-dimensional clusters of crystals made of a combination of minerals. Abigail Freeman, deputy project scientist of Curiosity, said on Twitter that these features that were seen before were made of salts called sulfates from studies of previous features like this found on Mars. They originally found uh, um, the feature was embedded in a rock which eroded away with time, but these mineral clusters seem to be resistant to erosion. The rover team saw this flower-like feature earlier this week actually, and they called it the Blackthorn Salt. And they used the rover's Mars hand lens imager, which is called Mahli, and took some close-up images. The camera is pretty much the rover's magnifying hand lens that is often carried by geologists when they go into the field. Mahli's close-up images reveal the textures and the minerals in the rock surface, and thanks to Simeon Schmaus, uh, we can see a 3D model of this object, which I'll see if we can put in the description of this episode. 
While this flower-like mineral is cool, it's not the first time we've seen this. Curiosity found another one like this back in 2013, and another rover called Spirit found similar-looking rocks that were appropriately nicknamed as cauliflowers because of their little knobby, protruding areas of mineral. Who knows, maybe in the future I'll write something about it as well. So we all know about black holes by now, I'm sure. I talked about them in an earlier episode, and I remember having a lot of fun talking about it. There's no continuity between this episode and that one aside from, you know, the basic podcast episode system, but I cover black holes more in depth in that episode. But very, 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 very basically, a black hole forms when something with a lot of mass and is very big becomes very small, and all that mass is contained at the singularity at its core. A black hole has a very strong gravitational pull, and if you get sucked in, you can kiss your butt goodbye because you ain't getting out of there. Also, black holes warp space-time in such a way that time moves differently between just outside of the event horizon, which is the one-way barrier keeping you from leaving the black hole, and on Earth. You got all that? Good. Here's the thing. We don't know much about black holes, but scientists are constantly learning more and more about them, how they work, how they behave, and how they even form. But a new study covers a strangely misaligned one about 10,000 light years away from Earth, and it offers an example that could actually challenge the established understanding of how black holes form. You remember what I just told you before this part? Yeah, that might not be true. This particular black hole found in the Maxi-J 1820-0-70 system suggests that there are forces that we haven't accounted for uh, when the black hole first comes into existence. The forces that put this specific black hole askew with the system around it. Maxi J1820 plus 070 is an X-ray binary system, which is a system that has a star orbiting off of a neutron star, or, a, or in more rare occasions, a black hole, which orbits off of that star. It's like a binary star system where two stars orbit off of each other. On a normal day, the rotation axes of the two celestial bodies in the system would be aligned and perpendicular to the orbital plane. But this isn't a normal day, and especially not a normal day in Maxi J1820 plus 070. Researchers have found that the spin axis of the black hole was angled away from the system's orbital plane. To explain, the plane, uh, holds planets with places like Spain, but in this system, it's in vain, as the black hole failed to maintain the direction of the plane. BARS! Now, basically, um, the orbital plane is a thin disk that surrounds the sun and extends to the edge of the solar system, and this plane usually prevents planets or any other celestial body from bumping into each other or going off-angle. And this black hole is off uh, of its system's plane by at least 40 degrees, which is surprising since angles should match, or at least get close to matching. The models that astronomers use to assess and measure black holes are based on the alignment across the black hole's spin axis being level with the orbital plane. And if that's not the case, our thinking about black holes needs to be adjusted, and other papers might have to be recalculated. Our results demonstrate the need to treat the misalignment angle as a free parameter when measuring black hole masses and spins, wrote the researchers in the published paper. The researchers used something called optical polarimetric observations to take readings and measurements of the optical and x-ray radiation coming off of the black hole's accretion disk. An accretion disk is a rotating disk of matter formed by the gradual accumulation of layers of matter, or accretion, that's the fancy name. 
and this disk forms around massive bodies like black holes. And this accretion disk, fun fact, is composed of the swirling matter that is gathered around the black hole as it strips mass away from the star it's orbiting. The fact that this 40 degree reading is, uh, is too crooked suggests that there is something that may have happened in the beginning of the creation of the black hole. It might have something to do with the formation process, but researchers aren't quite sure yet. It's been thought that the black holes get what are called natal kicks when they get created from supernovas. These, cooks, the, these kicks might sometimes break the whole system apart, and it seems like this same kick could create a misaligned black hole, like the one in Maxi J1820 plus 070. It could be that, or it could be that, or something else in the formation process that hasn't been considered previously. The idea of the alignment of a black hole could be off has actually been proposed before, but the black hole in Maxi J1820 plus 070 has shown more evidence of how out of line the black hole can be. Two astronomers from the European Southern Observatory and the University of Padova, Ferdinando Patat and Michaela Mapelli, wrote a documentary or a commentary on it, saying, quote, The study deeply changes the current understanding of how black holes can be formed and indicates the presence of a powerful kick produced by the supernova that generated the black hole. Anyway, that'll do it for this week's episode of Mind Blown. I'm Nathan, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again next week.